Pocahontas County at the turn of the century and the millennium, a small, perhaps even isolated community. During the time when 1999 became 2000, there were plenty of people on the edge about Y2K, the future of the government, the economy, and even more. In Pocahontas County, there was also something else to be worried about in September of 1999, a missing persons case turned murder. In rural areas, communities, the people in them, and the role they play are so much more close-knit. So when a popular business owner goes missing and is found days later, brutally murdered and dismembered, public's reaction can be extreme. So much so that the accused killer's trial is set in a separate county just to ensure impartiality from jurors. Despite the impartiality, Tonight's case sees contention between the defense and the prosecution over details that line up less than perfectly. Thanks for joining us for this week's edition of Crime in the Coalfields. I'm Izzy Post. And I'm Harper Imch. Crime in the Coalfields is a podcast brought to you by 59 News that explores the most notorious crimes, killers, cold cases, and more, all in the mountain state. Today, we examine the late 90s murder of Melba Marie Hickson Fitzgerald a popular Pocahontas County restaurant owner, found murdered and dismembered on a property she and her longtime business and life partner had an interest in. We examined the brutal deal and the dramatic court case that rocked a county for several months afterwards. This episode of Crime in the Coalfields is an exclusive podcast experience sponsored by Rose and Questenberry Funeral Chapels. How would you like to relieve the emotional and financial burden off of those you love? Express your own wishes and avoid conflicts among family members. Call Sandy Evans at Rosenquist and Barry today. Today's case is one with few details that are publicly available. So for this case, we've combed through newspapers that we could find from the turn of the century to find just as much information as possible on the murder of Melba Hickson Fitzgerald. This was definitely one of our more in-depth researching periods that we've had for this podcast, just finding the sources, lots of phone calls. At the time, there wasn't a lot recorded that we could get our hands on. Yes, and I don't think, we've already said this is the turn of the century and the millennium, I don't think that this case really, it wasn't a huge media thing. You know, we we have a lot of newspaper clippings that we used to kind of research this case, and we wanted to go a little bit outside of the territory that we normally cover. We wanted to do something different, so we went towards Pocahontas, Greenbrier County, and there's not a lot there. There's enough, and we're going to give that to you, but there's not a lot. Yeah, so here's here's what we did find. Fitzgerald was 41 when she died at the hands of her own roommate and business partner, a successful Pocahontas County businessman. The two worked together to operate a business called The Intersection in Pocahontas County. Now, we've done a lot of business-related cases recently, so I want to be the first to apologize for all of the consistency, all of the, the same sort of things, but it does pose a question. It opens up a very important question about, I guess, crime. Murder, more specifically in all of these instances, but crime is that crime is business. It's personal a lot of times, too, but it's also business, you know? This is... The case is firmly surrounding two long-time, not just business partners, but, like, life partners. They live together. They 
they spent all of their working and living days together. Right. But we've talked about this, too. What are the two things that fuel murder outside of, you know, insanity and mental health? Money and vengeance. Yeah. And and that's very much the case likely here is, is this is probably something to do with money. Money troubles. Right. And Fitzgerald and her partner owned a pizza and sandwich shop in the area. And you think of these rural communities and especially Pocahontas, which even to this day, well into the 21st century, is still incredibly rural and incredibly small. That was the place to be in the late 90s and the early 2000s. Yeah. So Fitzgerald was reported missing on September 8th, 1999. Her naked, decapitated body was found in a spring reservoir the following Saturday evening on a property near Dunmore. The enclosed concrete reservoir was approximately 12 to 15 feet deep. Fitzgerald's body had been sent to the medical examiner's office in Morgantown for both positive identification and to determine the cause of death. According to a defense attorney, R. David Arrington, that property where she was found had a 50% controlling interest from her roommate, Roger Paul Gillis. Once again, to go back and reiterate, Roger Paul Gillis had a property where she was found. He had a 50% controlling interest in that property, and that very closely links him to this case from the get-go, from the jump. And it's nearly immediate because the interesting thing is about how she was found. Police were actually called, you know, there was a 911 call placed and her body had, had been found. So she was missing for a time, you know, they filed missing persons, did all of the, the required things there. Three of her friends, though, three of her close friends, went on suspicion, knowing about this this piece of property that, that Gillis owned, and they investigated and actually found this stone reservoir where her body was was dumped and, and disposed of. They, they went, they found her, they called 911, and then the police got out there. Well, and it's just, it's really interesting, too, because you think about, again... What are the standard things in murder? I feel like you and I with this podcast have kind of gone to detective school. And again, that's through the the help of many people that have helped us along the way in this podcast. But money and vengeance and who the first people that you're going to question, the spouse and the people in the house. And now you have someone in the house who's been with her for a long time, business and life partner, money and vengeance, and you live in the house together. And now you have this property that ties to this person. It's just like all fingers pointing. Yes. And it makes me think, did did Roger Paul Gillis think he was going to get away with this? Like, when you live with a person and you're ready to kill them, you, ha- you have to imagine that you're going to be the first suspect. Like, he had to have known. Right. Or at least suspected, maybe I could be the first suspect. That had to have come into his mind at least once. I, I don't know. I, I would hope that he wasn't that that unintelligent about it but maybe maybe it was maybe maybe we're missing a piece here and a piece that we probably will never find but maybe we're missing a piece of the motivation of why this was done maybe it was more of a spur of the moment more a more vengeance than money but it seems like it would be more of a money thing considering the business but regardless Fitzgerald and Roger Paul Gillis operated the intersection as we said before this is a pizza and a submarine sandwich shop It was located on Route 92 near Green Bank. According to the Pocahontas County Sheriff at the time, Jerry Dale, Fitzgerald had visited the sheriff's office on two occasions before her death, but she had refused to file a domestic violence complaint 
She said, quote, this has been going on all summer. The only thing we can do unless we have probable cause for an arrest is recommend a domestic, the sheriff said. And he said that she didn't want to go that route. Dale also said that Fitzgerald had indicated that she had been receiving harassing telephone calls and her car and mailbox had been damaged. She'd also been threatened. Fitzgerald's car, a mid-sized 1986 Oldsmobile, was found the following Tuesday parked in the Clarksburg area, according to prosecuting attorney Walt Weiford. These details make me think. It makes me flip now. Once again, with a lot of these cases, you think it's one way, then it maybe goes the other way. And this makes me think, like we were just saying, maybe it's not business. This sounds more personal. There are a lot of aspects of this case. It almost feels like this case is a jigsaw puzzle of some cases that we've covered here on Crime in the Coalfields. Travis Summers, Brenda Lambert. I mean, just kind of that idea of you've got a you've got a business aspect. Um, even Bill Bradford. You've got a business aspect in financials, which we don't know the details of the financials. You've got somebody in a domestic situation or what's alluded to a domestic situation. And you've got a atrocious way for a body to be disposed of. Yeah, with decapitation in, in this case as well. It makes me think, I think in this case, it's perhaps even more domestic because in a lot of these other cases you had, there were either affairs going on or, or they were business partners, but they didn't necessarily live together. But in this one, you've got two business partners, two life partners. If you live with somebody, you're dealing with them every waking moment or, or nearly very close thereof. And if you're living like they were out in Pocahontas County, managing a restaurant, you're more isolated out there. There's not a support network. And clearly she had good friends. She had three good friends who cared about her, who we'll talk about, uh, we'll touch on this again a little bit later, but just to go ahead and say, those three friends did suspect things when they were kind of testifying in court later. One of them at least testified in court. She said she, she knew that she was getting like beaten and, and, and abused daily. And so, this makes me think now, okay, maybe this isn't a business thing. Maybe this is a, Roger Paul Gillis lives with a woman who he has some power over and he's exercising that in, in a very nefarious way. He's, he's, he's abusing her. Right, and when it came time to prosecute Gillis for the murder, he was actually prosecuted in Lewisburg, Greenbrier County, and that was because of the amount of conflicting interest in the local area. Again, small rural community, very close-knit. Everybody knows what's going on. It's hard to ensure impartiality from jurors when they're your friends and your neighbors and they're they're frequenting your popular restaurant exactly. all ha the time. Half of the people who are going to be jurors in the case likely were all involved in the case, or they knew these people owning the local restaurant. So it had to be moved to Greenbrier County. But here's the weirdest part of the case. Cult activity might be the true culprit. Now we've talked about cult activity before and maybe that's something we dive into a little bit deeper in another episode. But the evidence supporting this conclusion is very, very thin at best. But there was a private investigator helping the defense of the case who claimed to have found cult paraphernalia in an A-frame on the property where Fitzgerald was found. Now this is a reach. Yes, and, and to go a little bit more in depth into this, from a lot of the newspaper reports that we, we compiled 
when we were researching this, there was a private investigator. I don't remember his name off the top of my head. Actually, it might not have mentioned his name, but he was hired, uh, I assume, by Roger Paul Gilas as part of the defense. So it's very well this could have been a plant, a ruse, sort of a, a business transaction, if you will. But it was said that there was a lot of cult paraphernalia. Examples were pictures of, of women being violently attacked or, or, or abused, or skulls of animals, satanistic books, things of that sort. Yes, and, and it's crazy. You guys can't see Izzy's face, but she's, she's giving me a face here. This is the sort of thing which we had a case earlier where there was some cult activity involved, and even that case was a little more believable. This is a, a huge stretch. It's very thin, and Roger Paul Gillis, he, he claimed innocence, but even though there was mostly circumstantial evidence and not a lot of physical evidence, there was no murder weapon found, a lot of the evidence had to be dismissed or the defense wanted it dismissed because police did not initially come with a warrant. Even though there was all that, most of the circumstantial evidence and the evidence that was kept in the actual trial proceedings, it pointed at Roger Paul Gillis. It all points to him. And, and I'm gonna play the, the kind of devil's advocate or the defense attorney role. Gillis only owned 50% of the property. That may not have been his building. We don't know. Right. Which is what else what also contributes to be this being thin at best. But again, you have a man with alleged previous domestic tendencies. Melva Marie having some domestic discussions with the sheriff at the time. So it's, it's not too far gone either <laughs> yeah it's not too far there but it's not too far gone well yeah and and it's entirely likely also that this could have been not just roger paul gillis it, it might have been him with assistance he, he he could have been part of something larger um and we're about to talk about this but but his son was also involved in right. this case well. and so it's it it's not crazy to say that he had other help even if one person commits a murder a lot of times they will get help afterwards. Well, and we've discussed this in multiple cases. Bill Bradford, Travis Summers, the Mad Butcher of Fayette County. It's not easy to dismember a human body. No, it, it is not. It's not. and It might happen a lot, but that doesn't make it easy. <laughs> I really hate that I'm laughing at that. But it's it's not easy to, to, to do that to a body. Our, our muscles are thick. Our tendons are thick. Rigor mortis. I mean, our body gets strong when it's dead. So... It's just something to think about as well. But the reality of this case is that Gillis went to prison for first-degree murder without bond. However, the entire duration of the case, as I said before, Gillis maintained that he was innocent. He said he loved Melba and that he would never do anything to hurt her. Gillis's son gave testimony which was used against him, claiming that his father did ask him to assist with moving rolls of carpet that might have been heavier than usual and leaving Fitzgerald's car all the way in Clarksburg where it was found. So, to wrap this up, and his son's name is Andrew, by the way. Andrew, I don't want to say he was coerced to give that testimony because that's not the case, but from, from reading these newspaper clippings, it certainly gives you the idea that his son was just kind of there. He was used in, in this portion. So, if his father did commit the murder, which it seems increasingly likely that that is the case, the more you look at the details, it's likely that his son was just prompted to help him out and then when he was being interviewed and and 
discussed with police he just kind of told him exactly what happened you know he, he moved these rolls of carpet he said well yeah they might have been heavier than usual his dad told him to take this car and dump, just dump it in Clarksburg and he did that so there you have somebody who's who's also kind of complicit so yeah and you know it's this classic son against father but in the end that's his testimony helped him get convicted for first degree murder he did get life in prison without mercy and he did try to get two new trials and it never happened. Yeah, and and I can see why because even though you have some of these outside little bits where the defense was really trying to, you know, attack back saying cult activity or they tried several times to say that Gilas did not murder her. He maintained innocence, but if you're looking from the prosecution standpoint, I think it's a it's a pretty clear-cut case and so that he he did he did get the sentence and he's serving so that's at least one thing we can take away from this case that we don't always get is that there was justice and there aren't really any loose ends there's nothing that really reaches out and grabs you and you wonder oh but what if because Fitzgerald's three friends they came they found her one of them testified like they knew that she was being abused and we know that abusive people, if they're pushed to a limit, they're willing to do that sort of thing. So I think that this is one of those few cases that we can look at and say this is sort of a, a clear-cut case. For sure. That's unfortunate that it ended this way for a person, you know, a victim of domestic abuse is one too many. Any any victim, whether that's it results in death or it results in, in bruising or it results in emotional damage, but any, any victim of, of abuse is... One, one more too many. Yeah, and I think that's the bottom line that we want to come to for this episode specifically is that is a thread that while we don't know the full picture of it because that's a personal picture between the victim and, and the abuser, we can for sure say that that was the motivation for this, that her friends knew about it, that the sheriff knew about it, that she didn't try to to pursue any, any legal action. And if she had, or if she had had people who had somehow helped her out of that situation, instead she would be here uh, alive today. But she was stuck. She was scared. And uh, this is where I'm going to say that if any of our listeners out there are in a situation where they are unsafe, there are resources available. Please reach out to your local sheriff's department, your local police department, even us here at Crime in the Coalfields. We're happy to help you out because we don't want to cover a case like this one day. Physical, mental, emotional abuse. Even if you, it's your life partner, even if it's your business partner, it's not okay. It's not normal and you shouldn't have to be stuck. You shouldn't have to be afraid. You shouldn't have to be trapped. And you shouldn't have to become another victim or another case. You should be able to be free. And there are resources to help with that. So never hesitate to do that for yourself. To call for help. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of Crime in the Coalfields. If you like Crime in the Coalfields, be sure to give us a five-star rating wherever you listen. And recommend it to any friends or fans of true crime that you know. Feel free to send us in any suggestions or requests for future episodes as well. We'll do the research and feature whatever cases that you send our way. This episode has been an exclusive podcast experience presented by 59 News and sponsored exclusively by Rose and Questenberry Funeral Homes. 
This episode of Crime in the Coalfields was written, hosted, and produced by Izzy Post and Harper Emsch.